Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. This week's episode, we have a great conversation for you with Richard Polsky. He's been a regular guest on the podcast over the years. In fact, he was actually our first guest ever on the podcast over a decade ago. He's joining us to discuss Richard Polsky Art Authentication which he founded a few years back with so many estates and foundations, no longer offering authentication services for really blue-chip artists like Warhol, Basquiat, Pollock. Richard stepped into that spot and has helped offer that service to collectors. So we chat to him about the business model behind that, how things are going, um, what kind of value his authentication really adds to collectors, what has his relationship been like with auction houses and museums? How much pull has his authentication been to getting artworks into auction sales as well as into museum shows? And uh, he even shares some really humorous anecdotes about uh, authenticating for certain clients. Um, so it's a really fun, entertaining episode. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Richard, thanks for catching up with us. How have you been? Doing well. Sunny day in northern california just sitting outside of a cafe having coffee and uh ready to talk to you about the art world definitely you know before we get into the authentication business i was uh Mm -hmm. well you and i were just talking before we started you know art tactic podcast uh it's been on now for just just over 10 years and you were actually the first guest on the podcast uh in 2009 uh the art market in the art world has changed so much since then, but um, I was re-listening to it. It was a two-part episode, and we talked about the market and how it was going to recover um, from the recession, and we talked about different artists, and uh, you were spot on with some of, with some of the artists, like sure. Elizabeth Payton, um, Cecily Brown, Richard Prince. Anyways, uh, we always appreciate having you on, uh, and uh, yeah, it was just fun to kind of listen to that episode which, uh, and reminisce about things. Wow, yeah, 10 years, that's no blink of the eye, my God, a decade, wow. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So, a lot so has ne- changed, you're right. Exactly. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I know we've had you on to talk about uh, when you launched the authentication business, um, and I know you've uh, encountered a lot of, uh, you've had a lot of success and, enca- and encountered a lot of characters along the way, so uh, we're really excited to have you on and uh, chat about uh, some of that. So I think most recently, I know you added uh, Jackson Pollock to the growing list of artists that you do authenticate. Um why why Pollock and who are the other artists that you're uh, authenticating at this time? Okay. okay, well, just to go back into time a little bit, um, we're now in our fourth year of business. Um, we originally started out with just one artist, Andy Warhol. And it came about because at the time it had been, I don't know, four or five years since the Andy Warhol Art Authentication Board had closed. And as a result of writing a few books about Warhol, Every few months, I get a call from someone saying, wow, I've got this painting. I'm pretty sure it's a Warhol, but there's nowhere to go with it. What do I do? Um, The auction houses won't accept it without an authentication letter from the Warhol Art Authentication Board. And I realized there was this tremendous niche out there that needed filling and that I was qualified to do this. So over time, we added Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring. And we thought at first, wow, that makes a nice, tidy package of these three artists who became friendly during the 1980s and um, all had amazing careers, all died relatively young, certainly in Basquiat and Herrig's case, very young. Warhol was only 58. 
And there was just a lot of work out there that needed authenticating. I mean, there were, these were prolific artists who had international markets and whose work was spread largely through the auction houses, let alone the gallery shows they all had. So a few months back, we realized um, we kept hearing stories about Jackson Pollock and crazy, crazy experiences that people had with this work. The number of fakes was startling. Um, and again, I realized this was something I've always had a personal interest in. Huge fan of Pollock. I've probably looked at every major Pollock in, within his sweet spot of, let's say, 1947 to 1951 or so. And he went out to the Springs, spent a lot of time at the studio, and always read about his work. He's always reading biographies, always studying, always paying attention. And one day uh, here uh, where I live, Stanford University now has the Anderson collection. This is the great collection of Harry and Margaret Anderson. And when he donated his collection, he owned what was considered the greatest Pollock in private hands. It was called Lucifer. And I remember standing in front of it not long ago, really studying it, walking away, going back to it a number of times and realizing I, I finally had a feel for the work and understood how, how these paintings were composed by Pollock. But the key is always, when it comes to authentication, is not only what was the artist's intent, but the unique energy an artist brings to his work and being able to determine what that energy is when you look at it. So long story short, we got involved with Pollock. There you have it. So you mentioned at the beginning of that how the Warhol um, Foundation stopped their authenticating services, and that really allowed you to enter into this space. Um, from my understanding, so many estates and foundations have stopped authenticating in large part because um, they might be sued You know, if the uh, owner of the work didn't like the result that they got from um, the authentication board. So I guess is that well first is is that accurate and also how does that how does your business model allow you to afford this kind of risk and potential cost okay. of potential lawsuits right. that uh, may force these foundations to close? Well, this is a question I'm frequently asked. People are very interested in lawsuits and how this all plays out. See, back in the day when the Warhol people closed, it was like a domino effect. They had been sued one time too many. And even though they prevailed, they went through millions of dollars. And they wisely said, hey, we'd rather spend this money on giving grants to artists than on lawyers. And it was like I said, it was like the dominoes started to tumble. Within weeks or months of this announcement, the art authentication boards for Basquiat, for Keith Haring, for Roy Lichtenstein and others said, you know, that's a good idea. We're paying too much in insurance premiums protect us. Uh, it's a hostile world out there. And why are we doing this? You know, we don't need the aggravation. The Pollock authentication board closed back in 1996. All right. So this was a growing trend. Nobody wanted to touch it because as you pointed out of legal reasons, when we decided to do it, we had to come up with an approach that I thought would work and make sense financially for us. When someone hires us, they do have to sign a one-page disclaimer, which is on our website if someone wants to see it. An attorney put it together, but it was written in layman's language. So the idea was to protect us, but also create a user-friendly experience. Um, basically, 
in America, which is a very litigious society, when you combine famous artists who are worth a lot of money and have very valuable estates, there are going to be problems. When people say, hey, I have a Jackson Pollock. If you turn it down, you're costing me millions or tens of millions of dollars. I'm not going to take this lying down. I'm going to do something about it. And part of the reason why these big estates got sued was because they're extremely wealthy. You know, these are, you know, think about what the Warhol estate is worth or any of these places, Basquiat, it's unbelievable. And they realized that, you know, if they had enough money to afford a good attorney, it was worth taking a shot at it um, because the payoff might be big. These are, again, wealthy estates who, if they lost, you know, could afford to pay a lot of money to these people. What we did to protect ourselves is we made it clear to people that when you hire us, it's all about transparency. In other words, when you went to the Warhol Foundation, or I should say their authentication board, you would have to sign a disclaimer saying you would not sue them. But you also had to give them permission that if they decided your painting was not genuine, they were allowed to take a rubber stamp with red indelible ink and stamp the back of it with the word denied. All right. So when you got your painting back, not only were you bummed out that, hey, this isn't authentic, but now you had this permanent stamp on the back of it so you could never sell it or, you know, donate it. And you'd ask the Warhol people, geez, why did you deny it? What went wrong? What happened? Well, you know something? They wouldn't tell you. They said they did this to prevent counterfeiters from getting involved. And, you know, I see their point. There's validity to that. So we realized that what we needed to do is if someone hires us, um, we issue a report that if we turn down your painting, we're going to tell you why. We're not hiding. We're holding anything back. We're going to explain step by step what our research was and what it revealed. And at the very least, you might be disappointed, but at least you're going to get some answers. You're going to know why we took you know, the measures we took by turning your painting down. Conversely, if the painting turns out to be genuine, we're going to explain to you step by step why it is so. So the point to all this is that there's no guarantee that you know, someone will never come after us, but we'd like to believe because we're being clear and transparent and upfront, they're not going to do this. The other point, part of what we did to protect ourselves is if you hire us, let's say you receive your report and you're unhappy with it, all you have to do is tear it up. That's the end of it. There's a confidentiality between us and a client. It's not like I'm going to post the results on the internet and embarrass you in any way. In other words, if you think I'm wrong, tear up our report, go to another art authenticator. Maybe someone will agree with you. So th this is how we structured things. Um, and so far it's worked out nicely. Now that doesn't mean it isn't, uh, everything's perfect and you don't get people who get upset, but by and large, you can reason with them because we're being very clear in what we're doing. Any of these artists, Warhol, Basquiat, whichever authentication um, board we're referencing, you know, th that would be the kind of the gold standard, right? If you have a Warhol and it's been authenticated by the Warhol board, you know, Christie's, Sotheby's, Phillips, they're going to sell it. Right. A, a museum, they're right. going to include it in an exhibition. It has that uh, gold standard seal of approval. What, uh -huh. as, as for Richard Polsky, art authentication, I guess what efforts have you uh, 
gone through or how's how has that progressed in terms of getting auction houses and museums to really value your word that uh, or your opinion over the authenticity of a piece that's a that's a good question obviously as you've mentioned Sotheby's Christie's to a degree Phillips that's the gold standard if you own a painting that's where you want to sell it because you're going to get the most attention in theory the highest prices and you know this is how the market functions um, when we got involved in this, and in more recent years, as we've become more known and hopefully have caught on a bit, I have had conversations with the big auction houses. And to paraphrase what they've said, it's essentially a situation where right now business is so good for the major auction houses. It's unbelievable. Every season, there seems to be an estate or a collection of some sort that someone wants to divest, they can pick and choose. As they say, to use a cliche, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. And they've made it clear to me, you know, hey, Richard, you know, we like you. You know what you're doing. You're doing a good job. However, it's why would we, let's say, take a $5 million painting that's controversial, where we're going to have to explain to our clients Yes, Richard Polsky authenticated it. His letter is good, but it's you know it's not from the Andy Warhol estate, which is, of course, their gold standard with which they work. So it becomes a situation where they're like, "Hey, we can get plenty of five million dollar Warhols with no controversy. We don't have to explain to our clients what the situation is, what Polsky's findings are, and go through all this. It's just too much work." That's the bottom line. And they've been very honest about that. However, we have had some considerable interest. I can't comment on who it is, but we're very close to doing a deal with, we'll call it the next level of auction house out there. Um, who has, one of these houses has hired us to authenticate a number of works for them and has come to us and said, hey, if you see something out there that has an airtight provenance, obviously visually is correct. We're interested. Bring it to our attention. So there's no guarantee a deal will get done, but one of these houses is looking at a number of pieces for the May sales. We should know shortly what's going to happen. So little by little, it catches on. The more press you get, if you do good work, and um, it's a matter of time. I really believe down the road, the big houses will eventually accept what we're doing. Oh, that's, well, that's really exciting development. Uh, definitely keep us updated uh, as we approach Absolutely. Uh, towards the auction. Absolutely. And you've been at this for a few years. Um, um, yeah, I know you, uh, year doing yeah. yeah. Tell us about uh, some of the experiences you've had uh, authenticating. <laughs> okay. And uh, I know you okay. always have uh, <laughs> amazing, entertaining, wild stories. Uh, how, um, how are things going? What can you share with us? Well, I mean, I could write a book about this, and I might. Um, you know, there's an interesting, um, how do I put it? There's a crossroad where, you know, art and, let's say, celebrity meet a lot. You see a lot of this as time goes on in the art world. I don't know if this goes back to Andy Warhol and interview and how he immersed himself in the celebrity culture. But a couple of years back, we were very excited when the rock star Alice Cooper hired us to authenticate a red Andy Warhol electric chair that he owned. 
And it was one of those amazing stories where you don't know where to begin to tell it, but we got the, we got the word out there and the story went viral and the story, they called it Alice Cooper's long lost Sandy Orhol. It appeared in over 200 online publications. So if your listeners type in Alice Cooper slash Andy Warhol, it'll come up in any number of places. But what was fascinating was in 1972, Alice was given a red electric chair as a birthday present from his girlfriend at the time, a woman named Cindy Lang, who actually appeared on the cover of the second issue of Interview Magazine. And she paid $2,500 for it. Um, At the time, though, People don't realize there was very little demand for these electric chairs. Even though the Death and Disaster series is of paramount importance in Warhol Zoo, um, the electric chairs were a hard sell. I mean, you can imagine how many people would want to hang this in their living room at the time. We're talking of 72 when Alice bought it. And consequently, there were a lot of these paintings available. And most of them were unstretched. They weren't stretched until they went out for exhibition and then signed. Warhol had that policy to prevent theft. Didn't sign a work till he sold it or it went out for a gallery show. So anyway, when Cindy Lang bought it, it was in a drawer. It was red. There were a lot of them available. By my count, Warhol did over 50 of these. They call them little electric chairs. I think they're 22 by 28 inches. Anyway, Alice got the paintings, um, but he was touring heavily in the early 70s. And he had developed a friendship with Andy at the time. They saw each other's shows. Uh, they hung out, I believe, at Max's Kansas City. And years later, probably at Studio 54. Anyway, Alice is touring heavily, takes the painting, rolls it up, puts it in a cardboard tube, and puts it into storage. And it stayed there for a while. Um, years later, I know this sounds crazy, but he was on the golf course. Alice Cooper's a big golfer with Dennis Hopper. They're in Maui. They're playing golf. And Dennis, who owned a number of Warhols, was talking about, hey, he just sold one. Uh, God, these things have become so valuable. And Alice is like, really? I own an Andy Warhol. And Dennis is like, you do? He goes, yeah, but I don't know where it is. And Dennis is like, well, you better go find it. And Alice literally got on the phone and called his mother. And she was living at his home. uh, He had a home in Scottsdale, suburb of Phoenix. And he goes, hey, mom, go out to the garage, you know, all my storage is. See if you can find a tube. I've got all this artwork in it, including a red painting of an electric chair. Sure enough, she called him back and found it. Yeah, it's here. And uh, so there you have it. It reemerged after all these years. Then we were contacted by his manager, a guy named Shep Gordon, became a celebrity in his own right. It's a great movie. Uh, it's a documentary called Super Mensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon. Get it on Netflix, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, long story short, the next thing you know, uh, Dennis Hopper is telling uh, Alice, you really need to get this thing authenticated. You should go see my dealer, Tony Shafrazi. And Shafrazi was representing Hopper's photographs, I believe, at the time. One thing leads to another. Um, From what I was told, Shafrazi told Alice and his manager they were wasting their time. The Warhol authentication board's difficult to deal with. But, you know, Shafrazi, you know, is a controversial person in his own right. So, so hard, so hard to know what really happened. Long story short, they hired us to take a look at it. And everything checked out. This thing was right as rain. 
It's currently hanging now in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it's on display and had a happy ending. So that's one story. That's a pretty good story. Um, it, it was fun because, you know, we all like celebrity. It was irresistible. I did get to meet Alice. I got to meet his manager and had a few very funny conversations with these guys. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for coming on and uh, updating us on how things are going with the authentication services. Um, we're excited to see um, your potential partnerships with auction houses, and uh, we'll be continuing to watch to see how things go. And if our listeners, can, if they want to learn more about the authentication service that you're providing, what's the website they can visit? Uh, once again, if they go to www.richardpolsky, P-O-L-S-K-Y, richardpolskyart.com. You click it on, you'll see a picture of me with Andy Warhol in 1986 when I met him and bought a painting from him. And I still had hair back then. So <laughs> it's quite the picture. Anyway, thank it's you, a, Adam. It's a cool one. Absolutely. Thanks so much again, Richard. Appreciate it. Okay. I'll talk to you.